The book of Exodus is perhaps the centerpiece of the Old Testament because it contains in chapters 12 and 13 the central event of the Old Testament. If I was to ask you what is the central event of the New Testament, I think most of us would have enough wisdom, even if you're not strongly biblically minded, that you would know that the cross of Jesus Christ that results in our deliverance from our sin is the central event in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there is another event in which deliverance comes by the death of another. And that event is called the Exodus, or the deliverance of the people of God, the nation of Israel, from bondage. And that deliverance of the nation of Israel then becomes a picture pointing forward to the cross work of Christ. It is the strongest echo or type in the Old Testament. So as you read the story of Exodus and you read about a lamb being killed, blood being shed, applied over the door of households, and deliverance coming to people, there should be in your mind an echo. That sounds an awful, like, an awful lot like what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And if you're making that connection, you're doing exactly what Paul did, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So whenever Paul, as a Jew, thought about Old Testament deliverance, the central event of deliverance being Israel coming out of Egypt, he would automatically assume and know that the death of Christ is pictured in the deliverance of the people of God from the nation of Israel. Central to the deliverance of the people of God from the nation of Israel is the sacrifice of an innocent and spotless lamb. If you miss that as you read the story or if you've watched the movie about Joseph, the prince of Egypt, and how God worked a deliverance for Israel, if you've missed the central fact of that story, I want you to know this morning that the central fact of the story of the deliverance of Israel from the nation of Egypt is the death of the Lamb. Because their rescue is predicated upon them being delivered from their consequences of their own sin. The consequences of their sin are poured out upon an innocent lamb, prefiguring a forward look to the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who would be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This morning, I just want to look at, 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 at a basic proposition, and it is this. From beginning to end, the story of the Bible is the story of a lamb. Okay, that's the assertion I want to give to you this morning. This book has a story. And the story that runs through this book from beginning to end is the story of the lamb. It is central. The first time it occurs, more than likely, is Genesis 3, when God covers Adam and Eve with skins, presumably animals sacrificed, and a covering for their sin temporarily is given. Genesis chapter 22. Abraham and the story of Isaac. Isaac is laid upon the altar. Abraham is preparing to take the life of his son, which is a, an amazing story from our cultural perspective, isn't it? It's one that shocks your thinking. But God is asking Abraham to give up his one and only son. His only begotten son. It's a prefigurement of Christ. Because from beginning to end, the Bible is the story of the Lamb. And central to the story is this picture of sacrifice for the benefit and deliverance of others. So that when Abraham prepares to take the knife, to take the son of his life, God stops him and says, Abraham, I have 
provided for you a lamb, a ram in this case, who will be, who will be killed and sacrificed in the place of your son. Your son today, Abraham, goes free. Because that ram will die in his place. And folks, when you read those stories, what are they doing? They're giving us an understanding that salvation from our sin, hope, is found in the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Central to the story of Israel's deliverance is the Lamb. This Passover, and that's what this uh, day of celebration is called for the nation of Israel. This Passover marked the day of God's salvation. He raised up Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Pharaoh responds with a kind of sarcastic reply. Here's what he says. Who is the Lord, Exodus 5, that I should obey him? Moses, what do you want? Why do you think I would give up the people of Israel this great asset of slavery in my land just because you asked me to? Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's the question that Pharaoh asked. God brings nine plagues to the nation of Egypt to cause Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. But over and over again, you find that he hardens his heart, he stiffens his neck, he's broken and then he's hard, he's broken and then he's hard. Finally, the last plague comes and the last plague is called the plague of the Passover. God sends Moses to report to Pharaoh that God in heaven is going to take the life of every firstborn in the nation of Egypt. Okay, now it's fascinating because if you look at, uh, I think, it, uh, Exodus chapter 11 and verse 5, it says, every firstborn son, these are the words of Moses to Pharaoh, every firstborn son in Egypt will die from the firstborn son of Pharaoh, and then he goes on and on to basically include everyone which does not exempt Israel from this plague. Okay, it's fascinating. Because when we read this, we, we tend to think Israel's exempt from this. Israel is exempt from the judgment of God when the judgment they deserve falls on the head of someone else. Okay, and it's very important that as you read this account, you understand that. Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the preservation of their life so that they can be delivered is a result of the grace of God. He gives them a means by which their sin can be borne away and by which they can be delivered from the full consequence of the wrath of God that they, like you and I, so justly deserve. Every father in Egypt, chapter 12, and look at chapter 12 and verse 3. Every father in Egypt is to take a lamb for his family. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then if you look ahead to verse 6, he says, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Is that not a shocking picture? Does that not rub up against the sensitivities that you and I have living where we live today? It's a shocking analogy that the deliverance of the firstborn of Israel is predicated upon the sacrifice of another in their place. So the story of the Lamb is central to the Bible, central to the story of Israel's deliverance is this picture of a Lamb. And central to that picture of a Lamb is a brutal and bloody death. Okay, that is the harsh reality. I, I, can't, I can't make this pretty. 
Okay? So the first thought is central to the story of the Bible is the lamb. Next, I want you to look at the offering of the lamb. Verses 5 through 7 real quickly. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. Okay, so the first qualification of the lamb that is going to be sacrificed, is going to have his shed blood, is that he must be visibly without blemish. Okay, he must have the characteristics of perfection. He must be a blue ribbon selection. Secondly, verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day. And at the end of the text, it says, the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. That is, in the evening of Passover. Okay, and I want you to just kind of mark these things down in your mind. Third, verse 7. It says, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Okay, so the third requirement is that the blood of the sacrifice is taken and applied to the doorpost and to the top. Picturing that everyone who enters into that home is under the protection that is symbolized in the blood that is applied. Okay, that is the picture that starts to call you forward and think about what Jesus Christ did. Okay, it becomes very, very powerful. So, what does this mean? Okay, this offering of the lamb. What does it mean for them? A couple of thoughts, just very simply. Number one is this. They are delivered by simple faith. If you believe that applying the blood of the lamb to the doorpost and lentil of your door would save your life, and you did it, your life was the, the life of your firstborn son and animals was spared. Okay, that's, that's the way the story unfolds. They are delivered by simple faith. Secondly, they're delivered from the death that they deserve. Okay, what's fascinating in this story is if you go ahead in chapter 12 to verse 21 to 23. Chapter 12, verse 21 to 23, it says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood and the basin and put some of the blood on the on." the top and on both sides of the doorway. Not one of you should go out of this house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will, and this is powerful, he will see the blood on the top and on the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Now the implication of that is this. If the blood of the lamb was not applied to the doorpost and to the lentil of the door, what would happen to everyone or to the firstborn inside? Their life would end. So it's not like God is treating Egypt differently than he's treating Israel. Israel and Egypt have the same problem. Here's what would really rub your sensitivities. What is Israel as a nation in the context of Egypt? What are they? They're slaves. They're the oppressed. They're the victims. And that God would hold them accountable for their sin is a, that's a truth that kind of rubs against us wrong, doesn't it? But in this account, it becomes very clear that God says to them, you need to put this blood symbolically over the doorpost and over the lentil of your house and do not go out. The implication very clearly is this. Even if the Israelites who have experienced struggle and victimization in their life who have been sorely oppressed. You go back to chapter 1 and, it's, and, and chapter 2 and it says that God saw the oppression of the people of Israel and it caught his attention. 
and he moved to become their deliverer through Moses. And he sends Moses with this account. Tell Israel, put the blood there, and if they do, I will pass over them. And those two words, when they come together, become the definition of this celebration. The Passover feast that Israel celebrates is to remember that we in our sin, deserved the judgment of God. But God, through a lamb, provided a way that blood could be applied as a substitute, and we have the privilege of going free. Yet we are certainly deserving of his judgment. Folks, that is the glory of the gospel. It's when individuals see that, you know what? I deserve the judgment of God, but he has provided a lamb, his son Jesus Christ, to be the way that I can be freed from the consequences of my sin. Israel, though victimized, needed a deliverer. And I think what this account starts to press home is a very simple truth, and that is this. That every one of us, on our best day, falls short of what God requires and expects. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. It means we may strive to keep a set of moral boundaries. We may have our own set of moral boundaries, but if we're honest about it, we will have to admit that, you know what? I ultimately don't perfectly adhere to even my own set of moral boundaries. And God's moral boundaries are even higher. It leaves me with this menacing sense of guilt and owing God. God in his grace and mercy provides a way. For us to be delivered from the consequences of our sin. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20 says this. It says, there is none that does good, not even one. Romans 6, 23. The wages of that rebellion against God is death. And in this story, the Israelites, the life of their firstborn is spared because of the death of another. You go back to verse 13 of chapter 12. And notice what this says because it starts to unpack this exodus and passover event it says on that same night i will pass through egypt and i will strike down every firstborn and notice that it's i'm going to pass through egypt and strike down every firstborn that is unqualified both men and animals i will bring judgment on all the gods of egypt i am the lord and then he says this the blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are and when i see the blood what happens The death angel, chapter 11, the destroyer, passes by and lives are spared. Why? Notice what he says in the text. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Any Israelite that day that was delivered from the consequences of his sin, and it was all firstborn, Any Israelite that was delivered from the consequences of sin that that night was delivered because of the substitutionary death of another. And if you understand that, you understand the heart of the gospel. You see, think of it this way. If you are the firstborn son, you're in that house, you know this is out there. It's the Passover. The next day, you're going to be delivered. Will you live to see the next day? Well, it depends if dad took the blood in faith and applied it to the doorpost and to the lentils. And if he did, that son, deserving of the... He's not better than the Egyptians. That's not the plea here. 
The plea is that something was done on his behalf through the death of another. That son would sit down to that Passover meal and either there would be on that night a dead son or a dead lamb. You see the correlation? On that night, either in the house, there would be a dead son or a dead lamb. That is the essence of the gospel because the gospel of Jesus Christ is about the fact, as we sung so beautifully, Christ died for our sins. The verse that comes to mind for me, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He, God, made him his son to become sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, here's what happens when someone comes to faith and trust in Christ. They go to God with transparency and say, God, I understand something about myself. I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm worse than some people. I'm better than some people. But the bottom line of your assessment from your word is there's none that does good all the time. And I incur a debt with God. But because of his love, God says, look, I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll send my son to be the sin bearer. He'll take the consequence of your sin. And if you are willing by faith to acknowledge that he did that for you, but here's what you have to do to acknowledge it. You have to understand that that death was necessary as the consequence, the price, the cost of your sin. It has to be paid. It is paid by Christ, who, though sinless, became sin for us. I say, Tim, how do you know that he did that? Because it's what the word of God says. And his becoming sin for us is that the weight and consequence of my sin fell upon him. And by his wounds, Isaiah 53 says, we are healed. The story of the lamb emerges in the book of Isaiah. The story of the lamb emerges in the book of Psalms. The story of the lamb is all over scripture. One writer has said, if you cut it, it would bleed the blood of Christ. That was shed to pay the price for our sin, for mine and for yours. We all know in our hearts that we fall short. If you're unsure, talk to your wife or your kids. Or you have another choice. You can just be honest with God and say that your assessment of my life, I have to admit, is accurate. Maybe not as bad as others, not as good as some, but I fall short. I fall into this broader category of humanity that is spoken about in John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever would believe in him will not perish. Why? Because he or she trusted in the work of Christ on Calvary's cross and now will not perish. Did they deserve to perish? The implication is clear. Christ did not die for his own sin. He was the sinless son of God. He died for my sin. So that I could have the hope of eternal life. And so that everyone, I don't even have to know you. A lot of you here this morning, I don't know you personally. But I can offer you a wonderful gift that will transform the rest of your life and your eternal destiny. And that gift is the Son of God who shed his blood to pay the price for your sin. And that shedding of his blood is pictured in the stories that your children learned all week. And I'm going to be really honest with you and say that that part about the blood is not easy for us to swallow, is it? It goes down hard. It's, it, it seems rigid. But the reason for that is that we have, we have so denied the effect and power of sin. We, 
we even wonder if such a category exists in the world that we live in. Is there any definition of absolute wrong for which someone could be held accountable? And yet, in our response to news reports, we all admit that we know there should be a consequence for sin, don't we? You couldn't read the story of Bertie Madoff about six months ago, the unraveling of a man who destroyed the life of untold hundreds of people, bilking them of literally billions of dollars, and not think, guarantee you, you thought in your heart, he needs to pay for that. All right, where'd that come from? You know where it came from? It came from a sense of justice in your heart because you were created in the image of God and you know that sin deserves a consequence. You couldn't watch the events of 9-11 and not think somebody has to pay. And if there was no action taken in your heart, you would have this cry for justice. Why? Because wrong deserves to be righted. And if God is just and holy, he needs to set the record straight. Okay. What about yours? What about mine? Because I'll stand before you and admit very freely, I'm a sinner who has been graciously forgiven only by the grace of God. I'm not better than any of you. People tend to have this uh, illusion about clergy that you you can talk to God for me, talk to the man upstairs, which I abhor. You know why? Because it assumes that because of my position and what I do, my performance, that I have better access to God than someone else. Folks, can I just be honest with you and say that is absolutely untrue. The only reason I can come to God is because of the blood of Christ. The only reason the firstborn in Israel was delivered and the firstborn in Egypt was the blood of the Lamb. That was the only reason. Do you understand why then, I'm going to just draw the thread forward for you into John chapter 1. Do you understand why then in John chapter 1 and verse 29, when John the Baptist is baptizing people in water, a baptism of repentance, do you acknowledge your sin? Yes. Well, let me baptize you. It's a symbol of the cleansing that God's going to provide for you. One day he's going to send his son and he's going to pay the price for you and he just keep baptizing people. Picturing. And then one day Jesus Christ comes on the scene. John is his forerunner. John is his billboard, his his front man, if you will. He's proclaiming, there's one coming, there's one coming. He's greater than I, I won't even be able to untie his sandal. He is so good and holy and pure. And then one day John says to the crowd that's gathered around him, behold the Lamb of God. As you read through the story, you find he's pointing to the person of Christ. Christ is coming. And John says, behold the Lamb of God. And here's what he says. And the Lamb for every Jew... The the picture in their mind would be exodus. It would be salvation, deliverance that's coming from God through the work of another. That would be the picture that would immediately emerge in their mind. John says he is the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And what it means is this. He is a Savior. He is a Lamb who, every Lamb in this case that was in this context, was going to die to bear the sin of another. John says, behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world for everyone who will believe. But you need to understand this this morning. The beholding that John is talking about is not simply, oh, look, oh, see, and go on to something else like we do in our culture all the time. The beholding that John is talking about is to contemplate, to receive, to meditate on, to think on, to ponder. He says, oh, look. Look at the sunset. Look at that tree. No. He's saying, behold the Lamb of God. 
a steady gaze in the imperative. What is John saying? John's saying, you know what? Remember the Old Testament lambs? The one that rescued Abraham's son from death? The one that rescued Israel nationally and all the firstborn from death? He is the one that all of that points forward to. So gloriously and so powerfully, he does this for us. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says this. It says, Christ died for our sins, the just for the unjust, the perfect for the imperfect. Him, I'll just be honest, him for me. Him for me. So that he might bring a rebel, a sinner, to God. Folks, this morning, that's how much he loves you. You say, well, Pastor Tim, I have all this baggage in my life, all these bad decisions in my life, all this weight of guilt in my life. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, Paul said, cleanses us from all sin. And as John saw the Lamb of God coming, a couple echoes would come up. He was the Lamb of God who was without blemish. Matthew 27, he was the Lamb who was slain at twilight on Passover. He is the Lamb in whom, John 19 says, not a bone was broken. And if you go back and you read the account of the Passover lamb, every one of those things echoes from the text. Jesus Christ is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, our Passover lamb who was slain. Who receives the benefit of his being slain? Everyone who is willing to go to God and say, God, I admit this morning that I am a sinner. I admit that I'm just like Israel. Perhaps this morning you're like that. You're religious. You have faith, but you don't have a savior. Or maybe you're like the Egyptians. You're the oppressor. You're the one that takes advantage of everybody for your own benefit and personal gain. That's how you work and and, and kind of negotiate your relationships. How is this going to work out for me? And your sin is a little bit different, but it's still sin nonetheless. The Lamb of God shed his blood to pay the price for your sin. As a church, we don't believe there's a greater message that we can share with people than the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. I want to read for you as we close this morning a passage from Isaiah 53. And I want to ask you this question as I read it. Is Jesus Christ your Savior from sin today? Okay, is he, have you just been transparent with God about your sin and come to God and say, God, I own the burden of my sin which is unbearable. And I believe the good news that your son died for my sin. He took the death I deserve and I live because on the table in front of me is the sacrifice of Christ. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 say this. Surely he, the Lamb of God, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. We considered him smitten by God and afflicted. But he was, please listen, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. And the punishment that brings me peace fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one turns to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, the Lamb of God, the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led, and here's the connection, like a lamb to the slaughter for the benefit of others is the clear implication of the text. 
This morning, will you ask yourself this question? Have I seen Jesus in this way? Dear friend, I understand this, some of the stuff in the Old Testament will rock your world as you read it. It'll challenge your thinking. But if you let it sink in, it will start to make sense that your rebellion has a price tag attached to it. Either you pay it, separate it from God forever in hell, or he bears the price for your sin for you as he came to do. You simply just need to come to him in faith and say, okay, Lord, I acknowledge today that I am a sinner, that I fall short, and I want to place faith and trust in the cross work of Christ. Can I pray for you this morning? Let's just bow our heads together.